Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50% to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Since Columbus's first exploration of the northern coast of South America... Guyana, or the Wild Coast as it was named by the Dutch, was seen by the Spanish, French, English and Dutch as a place of discovery, settlement and wealth. The early 17th century saw Dutch trading ports, a short-lived French colony and an English settlement called Marshall's Creek. But immediately following the English Civil War, a colony was formed on the north coast of South America in what is modern-day Suriname. It was an area previously visited by the Spanish, the French and the English during the 16th century, many of whom had sought out the golden city of El Dorado. In 1650, it would become known as Willoughby Land. And the story of Willoughby Land is a perfect microcosm of empire itself. Joining me to discuss the events surrounding the establishment and surrender of the colony is a truly wonderful writer, Matthew Parker, author and fellow of the Royal Historical Society, whose works include Monte Cassino, the story of the hardest-fought battle of World War II, The Sugar Barons, and Goldeneye, where Bond was born, in Fleming's Jamaica. His next book is One Fine Day, 29th of September 1923, Britain's Empire on the Brink, which comes out later this year. But the book we're going to be talking about today is Willoughby Land, England's Lost Colony, which examines the events of this short-lived South American colony and its place in a larger discussion of the nature of empire. Matthew, it is an absolute pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. I am delighted to have got you on to talk about Willoughby Land. It's lovely to be here, Susie. It's a book I love and it's a wonderful opportunity to chat with you. Great. So let us start at the very beginning, because although we're talking about a settlement in the mid-17th century, you don't begin your book there. You begin 50 years earlier with the expeditions of Sir Walter Raleigh to what he describes as the beautiful island of Guyana. So can we talk a bit about that background of colonisation in the period leading up to the formation of Willoughby Land? Why is it important to understand Raleigh's role in establishing settlement in the area? I think we have to understand what was really motivating Raleigh and other explorers. The first known European contact with this part of the world was Christopher Columbus on his third voyage in 1498. And he turns up at Trinidad and he notices that there's fresh water way out to sea. 
And so he correctly surmises that he's on the coast of a large continent. He's followed the following year by Amerigo Vespucci, who travels the same sort of area along that coast. He doesn't really see many people until he gets to the mouth of the huge Orinoco River, where he sees lots of little huts on stilts, and he calls it Little Venice, hence Venezuela. And then after that, Columbus's report that really puts energy into all of this, because Columbus says that people came out in boats and they had all this wonderful gold ornaments all over them. And his eyes lit up, of course. And he said, where do these come from? And they said, oh, it's from a big place up in the mountains of the interior. And this is the beginning of the story of El Dorado, of the city of gold. El Dorado actually referred to the supposed king of this city, who would be covered in gold dust as an initiation and then plunge into a river. Anyway, the city itself became known as El Dorado. And subsequent to these reports coming back, really all of the exploration by the Spanish and the Portuguese of this area of South America is driven in very great part by the search for El Dorado. So you have all of these people heading off from the Amazon or the Orinoco. There was one German expedition. They head off and a lot of them are never seen again. Others come stumbling back out of the jungle with absolute horror stories. There was one German-run expedition that found itself, they reported, in a very sterile and pestilential land with very few natives and drove the men to start eating ants, which caused them apparently to suffer a strange ailment that turned them a sickly orange. Those afflicted, they said, grew desperate for salt and would seize any old piece of sweat-soaked clothing to eat it. Their hair fell out and in its place emerged a pestilential scabies from which they died. Another expedition a bit later in the 1560s headed up from the Amazon that 2000 only 25 returned. Their leader reporting said, the reports are false, there is nothing on the river but despair. However, people continued to believe in El Dorado. And if they couldn't find it, it's because it was somewhere else, not because it didn't exist. And so it moves around and eventually ends up in the least explored area, which is the high ground behind the Guiana coast, what was known as the Wild Coast. And this is a sort of 900 mile strip between the Orinoco River and the Amazon River. The Portuguese are well established, the Spanish are well established in the Orinoco area. In between, it's a sort of no man's land. And that's really where the efforts for El Dorado continue. And there was one, a guy called Antonio de Berrio, a Spaniard, who was based in Trinidad. And for him, this became an absolute obsession. He spent his entire life and savings searching up the Orinoco River for this potential city. And then he had a really what he thought was a reliable report that it had been located. So he sent letters back to Spain requesting a thousand men to come and conquer the city of Spain. But these letters were intercepted by a ship's captain who was working for Walter Raleigh. So Walter Raleigh in 1595 he arrives in Trinidad, and for Barrio, this is a complete disaster. You've described that so well. What does what he says about what he found, his book that he later writes, what part does that play in kind of inspiring subsequent decades of exploration and unsuccessful settlement? Raleigh's a rather fascinating figure. We could talk about him for a very long time. He was the Queen's favourite, and then he fell out of favour because of his secret marriage to Elizabeth Frogmorton. And really, this expedition was in a large part to try and regain the favour of Elizabeth by giving her a new empire for England. He's such a crucial figure in terms of the colonisation of the Americas. People like Drake and Hawkins, they'd really been there for looting and robbery and so on. But he had this vision of settlement, of colonies 
providing raw materials, providing space for overpopulation, and really to give people a second chance. So you could go as a colonist, you could go to the Americas, and you could reinvent yourself. If you were a thief, you could become a judge. If you were a quack, you'd become a distinguished doctor. If you were a woman who had lost her virtue, this could be recovered. So he had this very idealistic view of colonisation. But also he wanted to deliver an enormous amount of gold to his queen. So he took these Spanish letters with their instructions. He turned up in Trinidad. He tricked Berrio. Berrio was there with only a small group of Spanish soldiers. He got them on his boat. He got them drunk and then murdered them. Captured Berrio and demanded more information from Berrio at the end of a knife point. He then heads up the Orinoco River. And all of the way, and crucially, he sees himself as different from the Spanish. They wanted to be different from the notoriously cruel Spaniards whose atrocities in the New World were very well documented. So he insisted that his men pay for all of the provisions that they picked up locally. They were banned from even looking at the women, which was a great difference to explorers. And they made a lot of friends. And the local indigenous people, apparently there was a prophecy that the Ingleses would rescue them from the tyranny of the Spanish. And Raleigh had this vision of an alliance between the local people and the English to even attack Peru from the landward side and therefore hit Spain at the sort of fount of all its wealth that was, as Raleigh said, disturbing the peace of Europe so badly. And he had local indigenous people with him as translators and he travelled quite a long way up the Orinoco River until it reached another river called the Caroni. And here difficulties arose, people started getting ill, and the currents were unfavourable. So he didn't actually find the city of El Dorado, but he found what he thought was a mountain full of gold-bearing rocks. So he took some samples, and then he returned eventually to England, where Raleigh seemed to have been very good at making enemies in the court. And... I think that there was a lot of sort of jealousy and so on. And his rocks that he brought back were found, unfortunately, to be worthless. And everyone said, we don't even believe you went there. You were skulking in Cornwall. You've made up all of this fantastic trip. So he said, I'm going to write it all down. And he wrote this book, which is one of the most extraordinary things you'll read from this period. This book is an extraordinary mixture of the fantastical and the mundane. It's still considered to be almost priceless anthropological information about people, about their customs, what they ate, their gender relations. There's a very hard-headed description of the potential for crops, for tobacco, cotton. There's also in the area, there's very valuable woods and dye stuffs as well. But at the same time, there are these crazy stories. He describes men with eyes and mouths and the best with no heads. And there's the female Amazon tribe he also describes as living there. And both of these are, of course, the European tropes, going back to Homer and Herodotus and Mandeville and these sort of people. But even more important for the future was another fantastical element. In the book, Raleigh gives a detailed description of the city of Manoa, or El Dorado. It's king, it's grand streets, it's extraordinary wealth, it's people down to the colour of their hats. None of this had been seen by Raleigh, of course, but was put together from rumours collected on his trip and from the Spanish letters that he got hold of. There was even a map citing the city and the large lake which it bordered in the hinterland of the Guyana coast. But this book, it was a massive bestseller. It was quickly translated into Latin, German, Dutch and French. And really, it seized the imagination of everyone in Europe. And so suddenly the wild coast, this previously ignored stretch of the South American coastline, there's a gold rush. So people pile in, not just looking for El Dorado, but also 
trying to form settlements and trading stations. Raleigh himself makes a second voyage in 1617, which is dramatically different to his first for many reasons, but one of them is because of the altered relationship between England and the Spanish. What was the Crown trying to do in attempting to colonise the area? Raleigh was in prison for treason, and he was actually sentenced to death, but it was commuted. And he had a lot of supporters, a lot of people wanted him to fulfil what seemed his destiny, to, to discover El Dorado and capture it for the crown. So James was under pressure from lots of different areas. And I think the stipulation for his voyage, so he was allowed to leave the tower and assemble quite a large party of men and ships. But there was a stipulation that he should cause no front or violence to any of the Spanish in the area because James, I think at the time, was trying to secure a marriage alliance with Spain and he wanted to form an alliance of some sort. So he didn't want to annoy the Spanish. But how Raleigh would do this, how he would turn up in Spanish territory, and they'd actually built a fort where the Orinoco reaches the Coroni, which is considered the route to El Dorado. So how they were going to pass that without causing some sort of violence really was a nonsense. And what happened is there was violence and Raleigh's rather hot-headed son Watt led a charge on the fort. The fort was captured and only two Englishmen were killed, but one of them was Watt Raleigh, his son. His throat was apparently ripped out by a musket ball. And at this point, the expedition sort of collapses. Raleigh is in pieces. He writes heartbreaking letters back to Bess and he almost doesn't want to go on. Everyone gets sick, a lot of his captains desert, and they'd rather go off privateering in the Caribbean. And so he limps back to London and is pretty soon afterwards executed. It's a very sad tale. Let's skip ahead then to the middle of the 17th century, a period of reflecting back on this and introduce Francis Willoughby. Who was he and what is the sort of route that leads to the formation of this settlement known as Willoughby Land? Through the early 17th century, there'd been lots of efforts by Dutch, French and English to form settlements, as I said earlier. And they were almost all disastrous, partly because the local indigenous people were extremely hostile. They were known as Caribs or Cannibar, hence cannibals. And apparently they could loose 10 to a dozen arrows in the time it took to load a gun. And these arrows had poison tips, which a contemporary described the agonising end this caused. Sometimes dying stark mad, sometimes their bowels breaking out of their bodies, which are presently discoloured as black as pitch and so unsavoury as no man can endure to cure or to attend them. And there's a string of failed colonies going up in the first half of the 17th century. The Dutch sort of established themselves around what is now Guyana, and the French sort of in around Cayenne, which is now French Guiana. But they were pretty small. But then comes Willoughby, and he completely changes the situation on the wild coast. And he was a Lincolnshire gentry nobleman, and he'd been, at the beginning of the Civil War, he'd sided with Parliament. But then, if you see a picture of him, there's a great description of his portrait. He's described as aristocratic indecision written all over his face. Anyway, he changes sides. And soon after, he's up for treason. He's made a sort of escape plan, and that is to go to the Caribbean. And he secures the proprietorship of what was called the Caribbean Islands, which is essentially Barbados and a few other of the small islands around there. And this is his sort of exit route. So he sells up and along with lots of other cavaliers who were captured or imprisoned, they escape. They all go to Barbados. And he did that as well. And then Barbados during the Civil War had actually just kept his head down 
and was making serious money through its sugar plantations. But then when the king is executed, the cavaliers and the roundheads on the island, who've been getting on fine, they suddenly have this massive falling out. And the island declares for the king in 1650. So Parliament sends a fleet to subdue the island. There's a blockade and there's almost a sort of mast and moor in the tropic. Two sides line up with their muskets. But then there's a torrential rainfall and they just give up and they go to the Mermaid Tavern in Oystens and they come to an agreement. And part of the agreement is that Willoughby is allowed to leave Barbados and go to Suriname, to what became known as Willoughby Land. While he was in Barbados, he'd sent a sort of advance party to the Suriname River. And by reviving the name of Raleigh, he had done a deal with the local people. He brought a couple of kings back to Barbados and they agreed that the English could settle among them. So he and the other cavaliers were expelled from Barbados and they arrive in this new place, Willoughby Land. And how ever do they make a success of it? There's several reasons why it succeeded when all the previous efforts have failed. And one of them was the deal with the indigenous Carib people. The other is it was just on a much greater scale. These early colonies would have maybe 20 to 100 people. He had hundreds and he invested a huge amount of money. So the land was cleared and there was a lively trade with the local people in hammocks and in other cotton goods. Tobacco, Suriname tobacco is apparently of very good quality and dye stuffs and woods as we talked about. Willoughby himself doesn't stay very long in Willoughby land. After about two months, he leaves and goes back to London. He's an inveterate plotter. So he gets involved with lots and lots of royalist plots. He's jailed by Cromwell on several occasions. So he's in London and the people in Willoughby land are left to get on with it. And they form, for the time, what is an extraordinary sort of advanced society. They had a governor and a council and an assembly like other of the colonies did. But the governor was elected by a franchise of the richer male people in Willoughby land. And it was described as a strange government, elective in the people. They also form alliances because previously the Caribbean was a cockpit of European wars throughout this period between the French and the Spanish and the Dutch. But on the South American coast, they all agree, look, we've got enough to deal with. We've got as much land as we want. We've got these indigenous people that we need to keep an eye on. And they came to an agreement that whatever was happening in Europe or all the rest of the Caribbean, they would remain friends. And this caused an enormous amount of prosperity. And very soon there are plantations on both sides of the river, way up into the interior of the country, and all producing very good quality goods. And then what happens is they change to sugar. And that is the moment where sugar is by far the most valuable crop. And it takes a while to establish. But once you've got your plantation up and running, then it's just a license to print money at this time. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records to what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means from the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service to the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis and I'm Dr Kat Jarman and on Gone Medieval in April we'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world 
will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special mini-series. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Was this getting back to London and elsewhere? Because you note by 1653 that the islands attracted some 26,000 settlers. So who are these people? Why are they going to Willoughby Land? Is it the sort of promise of gold still? Or is it this sense that you can escape the political environment of Europe? Or have they learnt about the possibility of printing money through sugar? Well, Willoughby himself actually published a pamphlet in 1655. It was a sort of manifesto for the colony. And he promised to provide cheap passage, easy loans or indenture on comparatively generous terms with free land on arrival. And he describes the colony as the sweetest place that was ever seen. Delicate rivers, brave land, fine timber. But a lot of settlers came from Barbados, which had become rather overpopulated. And a lot of the sort of smaller operators had been squeezed out by the big plantations. There had been a sort of an amalgamation of a lot of the smaller settlements. But also there's, if you look at England at the beginning of the 1650s, it's absolutely in ruins. It's suffered more deaths per head than any other time in English history apart from the First World War. There was a huge slump, very high unemployment, Taxation is something like seven times higher than before the war. It's a ruined country. And it's also, at the same time, a sort of deep chill. It's a sort of part of the mini ice age. And if you compare that with Willoughby land, which was, as one visitor put, a place of eternal spring, where the blissfully warm air was fragrant with the scent of oranges, lemons, figs, nutmegs and noble aromatics. So obviously it wasn't that hard a decision to make. No, on this grey day, I feel the appeal of Willoughby land myself. Indeed. There was still the search for El Dorado, people still headed up looking for this thing. There's a famous quote by William Beckford in Jamaica when he was asked by someone, why aren't you looking for gold mines? He said, why do I need to? I've got my gold mine pointing to his sugarcane crop. So El Dorado is not the key that it was in the earlier period. But also, it had entered into the imagination. It had a sort of exotic, even erotic appeal. Raleigh himself described it as a place that still had its maidenhead never entered by any army. And it apparently also had the most beautiful women in the world, lascivious, all nakedly exposed to every wanton eye. Gosh, both virgins and lascivious. Yes, I know, amazing. amazing. Yeah, And it also did have freedom. One of the largest communities by the 1650s were Jewish people who had been in Brazil when Brazil was under Dutch control. But when the Portuguese kicked the Dutch out of Brazil, it meant the return of the Inquisition. Under Dutch rule, they were safe, Jewish and conversos. So they upsticked from Brazil and moved en masse to Suriname. They were highly sought after, partly for their cosmopolitan and international connections, particularly with Amsterdam. And they were offered freedom of conscience, the right to erect a synagogue, the first which was built as early as 1654. They could be elected as burgesses and they were exempt from taxation 
for up to 12 years. That's how desirable this community was. And this was more freedom than anywhere else in the world up until the 19th century. And also for cavaliers and after the Restoration for non-conformists who were obviously after the Restoration were faced with the Clarendon Code and censorship and a lot of restrictions. So it was a place of political freedom. It was a place of exotic appeal and it was potentially hugely rich. And in the 1650s, it was described as potentially richest colony in the British Empire and the most hopeful place anywhere in the world. But then with the Restoration, everything changed. But thinking of freedom, was the crop that was so valuable, sugar, dependent on forced labour of enslaved or indigenous people at this time? By 1653, there was something like 30,000 enslaved Africans in Barbados against a white population of only about the same. It was about evens. In Suriname, there were a certain number of enslaved indigenous people, but they had to be very careful where they came from. So rival tribes would enslave each other and sell them to the English. In fact, there was even a phrase for which tribes could be safely enslaved and which couldn't. They were known as beavers for some reason. I don't know why. But this is on a pretty small scale. Most of the work is still done by indentured or free white labour. And then at the beginning of the 1660s, people start looking around Suriname and say, look, what this place needs is enslaved Africans who have proved so successful at growing sugar in Barbados and elsewhere. And then there's a sort of turning point in 1663 when Charles sets up African Adventure as basically a slave trading business with his own money, with a lot of money from the court and from other people, including Pepys and Locke. And they really take the importation of enslaved people onto another scale. They're delivering tens and tens of thousands all over the Caribbean. Of course, this introduces everything that Willoughby must have known about in Barbados. It completely changes the nature of the place. It becomes a place of tyranny and of terror and of cruelty. And that's what happened to Willoughby Land. And we have descriptions of this because Afra Ben, the playwright and poet, possibly the first woman ever to earn her living through writing, made a visit to Willoughby Land in about this time that you're talking about, 1663-64, and writes Orinoco, which of course comes out much later, 1688. She gives descriptions of it as a place of great beauty and possibility, but she also gives a sense of some of the striking and horrific details about the lives of enslaved Africans. What does she say? What did she tell us about the treatment of these people? Just to take it back a little bit, some of the people who are seeking the freedom of Willoughby Land are on the run from the law. And this includes a very interesting character called William Scott, who is the son of Thomas Scott, who was Cromwell's spymaster and a regicide. And Thomas Scott, his father, is persuaded to give himself up after the Restoration and is killed in the very unpleasant way in which traitors were killed in those days with being hung, drawn and quartered. So William Scott is on the run. He'd been a spy for Cromwell as well. And he goes to Holland and he's a heavy drinker, he's a womanizer, he's a spendthrift and he will really work for anybody. And to paint the picture at the end of the Restoration, there's endless plots and plotting and spies and spies spying on spies. It's, it's a lot of sort of complicated disloyal playing out. Anyway, he flees to Suriname and there everything has changed and democracy has collapsed. And there's a guy called William Byam who is a cavalier and he's taken over and all of the sort of political freedom is disappearing. And you have rival groups now who are at each other's throats. You have the groups who were previously parliamentary supporters and you have the royalists. And all of the sort of friendliness has gone and they are really at each other's throats. And Afra Ben arrives in Suriname as a spy. She had a code name, Agent 160. 
And she's sent there, we're not sure by whom, but when she returns, she gives a personal audience to Charles II, reporting on her trip. And part of her brief seems to be to bring in William Scott and turn him to become a double agent, which he'd given indications he was willing to do. She arrives and she finds the English people, particularly the royalists, which she calls them the sort of scum of Newgate and all the sort of phrases that they used in those days. And this is very strange because Afro-Ben is a staunch royalist, but she ends up, it seems, actually falling in love with this William Scott, even though he's married and much older. And she was described as witty and beautiful. A friend would later write, she was the mistress of an uncommon charms of body as well as mind. She gave infinite raging desire. William Scott is clearly absolutely infatuated with her. But Byam, in the meantime, is moving against people like William Scott, and he manages to throw Afro-Ben out of the colony. And William Scott also leaves, but he can't go to England. He stays in Rotterdam, and he actually pops up in the story in an important way later. But meanwhile, Afro-Ben has written her first play in Suriname, and she's also gathered the material for, in my opinion, her masterpiece, Orinoco which has been described as the first psychological novel and is also of immense importance for the history of the abolition movement. The story is about an African prince who is tricked into slavery in West Africa and arrives in Suriname and offers his owners gold and slaves if he can be released and returned to West Africa. And they dilly-dally, they wait, we have to ask Willoughby. Willoughby still hasn't returned to Willoughby Land. He's still in London. And so he leads in her book, which she calls a true story, he leads a slave revolt, which gathers everyone together and they drive towards the coast to try and escape. There's a battle and a lot of the slaves are killed or desert and Orinoco is captured. And then Afrobane describes in vivid detail treatment that was meted out to him, which included whipping, rubbing the wounds with hot peppers... And then eventually he is tied up and whipped some more and castrated and just bits of him chopped off and put in a fire in front of him. This was shocking stuff for an English readership. And the book itself, as you said, it didn't come out so later, but she told the story a lot to her friends. And it was made into a play by Thomas Southern, which became a sort of staple of the stage throughout the 18th century and had a huge impact on educating people about what slavery actually meant in practice. I think Hugh Thomas, the writer of a key book on the slave trade, says it's impossible to exaggerate the importance of Orinoco for preparing the ground for the abolition movement. We have a sense also here that the kind of utopia that Willoughby Land had been had dissolved and the restoration seems to be key to that, including the fact that Charles is willing to say yes to a company that will enslave Africans and that subsequent effect on the colony. Is that the heart of it, really, that the restoration has such a political fallout in Willoughby Land that that has changed its character completely? It's very tempting to romanticise things, isn't it? I think maybe in my book I've been a little bit guilty of that. But it's really the arrival of the outside world that causes this sort of utopian community to fall apart. And this takes the form of enslaved people, which changes the tone. Willoughby becomes a proprietor, he becomes the owner. So all these people who thought this was, suddenly they find themselves not freeholders, but tenants on what they thought was their land. And then three other things happen. Willoughby finally returns and there's almost immediately an assassination attempt on him by one of the disgruntled brethren. And he clearly sharpens the divisions that are going on. And they don't want a proprietor. They were quite happy with their elected governor 
being left to get on with it. There's an idea in London that colonies should serve the mother country much more closely, which brings in the Navigation Acts. It restricts trade. And Willoughby, with his party, also brings some new infection to the colony that they'd been free of before. Loads of people are killed by this, including a lot of people who appear in Afrobain's book. And there's also an order from Charles that the friendly relationship that had been going on on the coast with the Dutch and the French, that has to come to an end. They are ordered to make war on settlements a little up the coast. So there's this toing and froing and people are captured and given over to the indigenous people to massacre. There's widespread destruction all over the area. And then William Scott makes a return. He's been putting out feelers to try and turn double agent. And Afro Ben then re-emerges. She is sent to Rotterdam to make contact with him and to bring him in. But she fails to do this for various reasons. And then Scott says, I'm going to throw my hand in with the Dutch. So he hands over to the Dutch all of the information about Willoughby Land, its weaknesses, its defences, the fact that it was now divided and struck with disease. And so the Dutch send very small force and they capture the colony. Byam is disgraced, he's tried for cowardice. But that's really the moment where Willoughby lands. Only 15 years after its establishment, the story comes to an end. I always think there's great value in what Richard Holmes calls footprint research, going to a place yourself. When you were writing this book, were you able to do that? Was it useful to you? Yes, I was able to do that. And I've travelled a lot for research purposes, but this was the most extraordinary trip I've ever done so far. It's such a strange place, overwhelmingly strange. And I'm sure English colonists found this as well. There's something like 8,000 different types of tree. There's 1,600 different birds. It's just got this incredible variety and strangeness. And of course, I arrived there full of all the injections for all the diseases, very much on the lookout for the spiders and snakes and piranhas and electric eels and all of these things that I'd read about. And really, I was looking for traces of that English colony. And I had in my hand the map of all the, from 1666, with all the plantations marked out and the city, there was a big city, Tororica, with streets and churches. And you arrive at a place called Paramaribo, the capital, which is a beautiful wooden-built city but incredibly Dutch. It's really from the Dutch period. There's nothing there. There's a fort, which used to be called Fort Willoughby, but now it's called Fort Zeelandia. There might be a few stones from the English period at the base of the walls or something. So I went on a trip in a little boat up the river Suriname, and we travelled very slowly, and we had to get out and pull the little boat up the rapids when we encountered rapids. And on both sides, it's just thick jungle. So I'd be looking for the city of Tororica, and it's just 100-year-old trees growing in what had been the marketplace. Not a trace at all. I went to Parham Hill, where Willoughby had his plantation. And I was shown lots of stuff that had been dug up. So many bottles, gin bottles. You can see what fueled the Dutch colony and everything else that went on there. But no trace of the English colony at all. And then we kept going further up the river. And it's just this stunning jungle everywhere. And then after a long period, we rounded a bend and suddenly there was life on both sides of the riverbanks. There were little children playing in the water. There were women washing. And these were the descendants of the Maroons, the African slaves who had run away and gone up the river and established communities. And it was just absolutely awe-inspiring. There was the odd mobile phone, but they were still doing slash-and-burn agriculture in the forest with for yams. They were hunting with bows and arrows for bush meat. 
and fishing. And they had these low little wooden huts where they lived. And it was really like an African village from hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And it was just the most extraordinary place. And this is really was what I came away with from that trip is that there was no sign of the English colony and all its cruelties. What had remained from that period was these maroon villages. Fierce and I wrote about them in the 60s, where they had recreated Africa, maintained their racial purity, their African arts of carving, singing and dancing, and above all, their pride. And this was a lovely thing to encounter. Again, we shouldn't idealise it too much. One of the people in my boat was actually a doctor who was travelling up to try and help with an ectopic pregnancy that had been reported and unsuccessfully the woman died. We shouldn't idealise living in the 16th century, but it just seemed so pure and, I don't know, heartening that Maroons had managed to survive and, as Naipaul says, kept their identity, kept their pride after the appalling things that their ancestors went through. So, yes, it was an extraordinary trip. I'm definitely going to go back there and I made some lovely friends. There's three different Maroon languages, which I was trying to pick up little bits of. And obviously, Suriname's history, there's been civil wars, there's been dictatorships, but they did find gold eventually. They found gold and there's a big mine. It's not El Dorado, but it does help pay for everything that the people need. Amazing place. That's wonderful. And that sort of sense of seeing a place, so helpful as a writer to be able to describe it, but also that sense of justice, I suppose, is perhaps too grand a word for it. But here the English have started something, the Dutch have continued it, and yet there are these pockets of life that have survived despite their colonisation. Your line in your book is that you say the English had come to paradise to a heaven and left behind a hell. And finally then, I suppose, what could we say that the story of Willoughby Land tells us about the nature of empire? It's a sort of microcosm of this absolutely huge, crucial change that occurs at this time. Previously, and we were talking about Raleigh and his vision of colonies as settler colonies, where people would come out, have a new chance, make a new future for themselves. And the same is true of Barbados. Barbados was entirely white for the first 30 or so years of its existence. And then everything changes with the introduction of sugar and slavery. The white population shrinks to nothing. The enslaved black population becomes absolutely massive. And you have this, instead of settlement, people would come from Europe. They would come, get as rich as they could, as quick as they could, and get out. There was no question of loyalty to place. It was just somewhere to go and exploit, obviously, the enslaved people, but the environment, and just exploit everything, take the money, and get back to England as quickly as you could before you got caught up in the slave rebellion or you got ill from the diseases of the region. So it goes from one vision of what empire should be to a radically different one all in this very short time frame. So it boils down what is, to me, a really interesting sort of pivot in the empire's history. Yes, it shows us what could have been and then what horrifically was. And as you have talked about it so well, people should know that you write even more beautifully. And if they want to engage with this whole incredible story of England's lost colony, then your book, Willoughby Land, is the place to go. Thank you, Matthew, so much. Thank you. And thanks to my producer, Rob Weinberg, and my researcher, Esther Arnott. And thanks to you for listening to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit. 
We're always eager to hear your suggestions for podcast subjects. So drop me a line at notjustthetudors at historyhit.com or on Twitter at notjusttudors. Also, if you're in need of an extra hit between podcasts, do sign up to our newsletter, Tudor Tuesday. Details of how to do that are in the notes below this podcast. And please rate, rank, bestow multiple stars and comment on this podcast wherever you listen, including on Spotify. It really helps more people find not just the Tudors. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.